The Old Testament reading for our Easter sunrise celebration comes from the book of Exodus, the 14th and 15th chapters. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And this is the word of the Lord. Christ has risen from the dead. God the Father has crowned him with glory and honor. He has given him dominion over the works of his hands. He has put all things under his feet. The epistle reading comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, the 15th chapter. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And this is the word of the Lord. And the Holy Gospel, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes according to St. John, the 20th chapter. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And this is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you realize, of course, that today should not have happened, right? And by all accounts, today couldn't have happened either. Because Jesus was dead. He was brutally tortured, and he was nailed to a cross. He was lifted up to slowly, painfully, agonizingly have his life leave him. He was pronounced dead, and it was verified by government officials. His lifeless body was wrapped in burial cloths, laid in a tomb, and sealed with a large stone. Armed guards were placed outside that tomb to ensure that nobody came near, and certainly nobody came out. Jesus was dead, and dead people stay put in the tomb where they are laid. So what we celebrate today, the Easter celebration that we have gathered together for early this morning, and that we gather together for every single week, it is flat out impossible. It's impossible. It simply can't be. And this is something that the world likes to remind us of over and over and over. We are told so often that the things that we believe as Christians are impossible. We're told by so many around us that Jesus Christ obviously never rose from the grave. There's all sorts of ways that the world tries to deny the resurrection. Oh, the disciples stole the body and lied about it all. Yeah, that doesn't really hold water because how did the disciples benefit from that? All of them were brutally murdered. They say, well, see, Jesus wasn't really dead. He was just kind of comatose. And then he woke up and the guards kindly let him out and let him go free. Again, that doesn't hold water because he was supposed to be executed by the state. And had he risen from the grave and said to the guards, pardon me, could you let me out? They obviously would have finished the job. Or maybe the gardener was just tired of people trampling all over his turnips, so he moved the body just to get rid of all the visitors. Or that Jesus never even existed in the first place. It was all just a whole bunch of made-up stories that kind of built up into this legend. Whatever the tactic, whatever the story, the world reminds us over and over and over again that Jesus' resurrection couldn't have happened, that it's just impossible, and that it's just plain silly for us to even believe anything like that. And then what's worse, we're told by our own hearts that it just doesn't even make any sense. We're told by our own sinful flesh it couldn't have happened, so maybe it didn't actually happen. 
But isn't that kind of the definition of a miracle? Something that can't happen and then does? A miracle is not just when your football team wins because they were a three-point underdog. A miracle is something that physically should not, cannot, couldn't possibly happen, and then it does. And yet, even as believers, we oftentimes doubt because of all the attacks that we hear day in and day out. And the attacks, they aren't just from the world. We're told by the devil that even if Jesus did rise from the dead, which he probably didn't, well, it can't possibly mean anything for us. He whispers that something that happened so long ago and so far away couldn't possibly have any bearing on our lives today and shouldn't be anything that we should even set our minds to. He points to all our sin, all the evil, wicked, shameful things that we do day in and day out. And he says, do you think God could actually forgive that? Do you think God could actually take away that particular sin? You know the one I'm talking about, the one you struggle with, the one you keep on doing, even though you know it's wrong. He tries to convince us that he is the real power. That he's the one that we should be looking to. That he can give us what's real and tangible and useful and now. And that all this Jesus talk about eternity and heaven, about sacrificial death and resurrection, that it's just impossible and it's not worth wasting your time on and it's certainly not worth waiting for. These are all the assaults upon our faith. And they happen constantly. Reminding us that everything we believe in is absolutely impossible. But that's the thing. God is all about the impossible. In our Old Testament reading today, we heard the impossible. Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt through, of course, the impossible ten plagues. And there they stood at the edge of the sea with Pharaoh's army nipping at their heels. And the Israelites had lost hope and said, Why did you bring us out here to die? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? And what did God do? He did the impossible. He parted the Red Sea. Israel walked not just across through the mucky mud of the bottom of the sea. They walked on dry ground easily through a wall of water on either hand, and Pharaoh's army was destroyed. God did the impossible to save his people. And of course, if we want to look at more impossible, look to the manger. God himself, eternal, immortal, unending, uncontainable, was born in human flesh humbled himself to be born as a tiny baby, not in a palace, not amidst grandeur and trumpet fanfares, but laid in a manger among animals. That's impossible. And yet, it happened. And then, of course, why did it happen? Because of the most impossible part of our Christian faith of all, the fact that God loves sinners like you and me. Because that truly is impossible. God is perfect. God is holy. And we are so, so far from either of those things. 
God demands perfection. There is no sin in his heavenly kingdom. And we are sinners to the core. Corrupted and rotten by nature. Sinful and unclean. By rights, God should despise us. Should destroy us. Should give us nothing but pain and suffering and smiting. As he proves he is indeed holy and we are indeed not. But what does he do instead? He loves us. Loves us enough to give up everything so that we can be redeemed, cleansed of our sin, made his children once again. God is all about the impossible. Not just on Easter, but every single day. God came and walked among his people, which simply can't happen. He's holy and perfect. Sin is not allowed in his presence. And yet, he took on human flesh, dwelt with us sinners, was surrounded by sin and ridicule and unbelief, mocked by those that he had come to save, ridiculed by his own creation. It shouldn't have been possible, and yet, it definitely happened. And then on the cross, God himself died, which can't happen. God is immortal. He is eternal. He is without end. By definition, God is beyond death. And yet, in mercy and love, he laid down his life to death. Not just as a show of devotion, but as the atoning sacrifice to pay for your sin. His innocent blood was shed to cleanse you of your guilt. It's simply not possible. And yet, he did it. And then, on that glorious Easter morning, as the people came to mourn his death and to finish his burial, God rose from the grave. And we all know that simply can't happen. Death is the end, period. We know that. Even those in the Bible who were raised from the dead, like Lazarus, like the widow's son, someone else did it for them. And eventually, they died again. But Jesus Christ, all-powerful God, showed his power over even death as he rose again from the grave, never to die again. It's impossible. And yet, it happened. And through that sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, God forgave every one of your sins. And that is impossible. It can't happen. You are a sinner. You are an enemy of God. You have no good at all within you on your own. You have nothing to offer God in return. And there is no reason for him to give you anything but pain and suffering and wrath. By your sin, you deserve only to be separated from God for all eternity, cast into hell forever. But by grace alone, out of a love that we will never be able to fully comprehend, God did the impossible, and he forgave your sins. Not just a few, not just the ones up until a certain point and then left you on your own to clean up your own miserable life, God forgives you completely. Removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. In the eyes of God, you have been clothed in Jesus Christ's own robe of righteousness. And you now are proclaimed holy, innocent, and righteous in his eyes. 
When you stand before his throne of judgment, you will not try to defend yourself and say, but but, but, but God, you don't understand. I had to do it. You will point to the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and say, there is my innocence. There is my forgiveness. And you will be welcomed with open arms into that glorious paradise of heaven. God did the impossible. And he has forgiven you of your sins. He took you, a sinful mortal, and he washed you clean. He changed you entirely to make you his own beloved child, to take away those urges to sin. Now, that doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. It doesn't mean you'll never be tempted. But it does mean that the Holy Spirit now dwells within you, and you want to do what is right in the eyes of God. You see that his way is better, even though it's impossible. You have been made God's own child, an heir of his eternal kingdom, living with him forever, beginning right now in his eternal glory and splendor. All of this, it's impossible. And yet, here we are giving thanks to God each and every day for all the impossible things that he does for us. Because with God, all things are possible. This doesn't mean that everything's going to happen the way that we want if we believe hard enough. It doesn't mean that we're always going to kick the game-winning field goal if we have the right Bible verse on our water bottle. It doesn't mean that we are going to overcome every adversity and avoid all pain in our lives. We will still suffer the effects of sin because we are sinners in a sinful and broken world. But it does mean that despite what the world says, despite what our own sinful heart says, despite what the devil himself says, we are right to celebrate today because God has done the impossible. Jesus is not in the tomb where we expected him to be. His resurrection gives us eternal life. And God, who is holy and righteous and perfect, loves sinners like us so much that he suffered and died in our place to give us the free gift of eternal life in heaven. All these things we are told so often are simply impossible. And in fact, they are. But the one true God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's all about the impossible. So even when the world cries and shouts us down, we continue to boldly proclaim the impossible, shouting out that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia! And for that, we give him thanks and praise each and every day of our lives. For God has done the impossible for you. By the cross of Jesus Christ alone, by his empty tomb alone, by the impossible grace and love of God alone, you are forgiven of all of your sin, and eternal life in heaven is yours. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.